Will Hutton in London. You published a very interesting book a year ago called The Declaration of Interdependence, Why America Should Join the World. But it was a go-it-alone moment in America, or go-it-with-just-Tony-Blair, and American readers didn't hear much about your idea. I wonder, would you revisit it for us, the basics? Well, I guess, I guess it's basically two big issues of our time, really. One is how you organize economy and society in a post-communist era where there's no threat from that quarter. And secondly, there's how we organize globalization and everything else, I think, whether it be environmental issues and security issues, terrorism, subsume into those big issues. And I, I'm very critical of the neoconservative view on both these things, which I think are uh, actively against a U.S. and global interest on both counts. I don't believe that you can visualize or you should visualize the way of organizing economies essentially around transactions, that all relationships between one human being and another is essentially a transaction, a cash transaction, and that essentially whether human relationships are um, always there to be bought and sold, um, so that everything is a kind of stock, is a, is a kind of stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh, the companies we work for, our relationships with our kids and our partners, um, uh, where we live, our neighborhoods, everything um, is is transactional. I don't take the view, the kind of moral view, that actually you can tell the industrious because they're wealthy and you can tell the indigent and immoral because they're poor, which is another kind of fundamental kind of cardinal kind of position of uh, the neoconservatives. So there's that. Related to that, um, I mean, the U.S. is the hegemonic power in the world. Um, say no more about that. And what's happened in the last 25 years is America's center of gravity politically and culturally has moved to the right, is it's moved the whole kind of international common sense to the right. So that um, when you be, if you're a Western European, um, if you're in Asia, um, um, the kinds of options that are open to individual nation states are right-wing options. Um, it's all about um, having a minimalist or non-existent social contract. It's all about um, expressing public endeavor as minimally um, as possible, about having tax rates and redistribution of income that's as niggardly as possible, uh, with the U.S. as the benchmark for normality. And I think increasingly that the way American economy society has organized, although it's such a huge country and that, you know, um, Jamaican generalizations is tricky, but I don't think, I, I, I don't think the U.S. should be, should, should either see itself or should be regarded by the rest of the world as a benchmark which everyone has to migrate to. But with that has come um, a view that actually it was very explicit in the State of the Union address and in the and in the Bush doctrine 18 months ago, um, in the uh, you know aftermath of September 11, that actually not only should you know is America the economic and social model that the rest of the world has to migrate to, um, essentially the U.S. has an obligation to itself and to the world um, to uh, act unilaterally and preemptively in international relations. And I think that uh, that there is no such thing as the rule of international law. What there is is the the rule of might, that actually those institutions like the United Nations which try to formulate international law should only be heeded to the extent they go along with what the U.S. administration at the time actually wants, and if that's not what the U.S. administration wants, then it can ignore it. So here we have the United States, the great republic of laws, 
um, you know, the, the quintessential democracy that respects right. the rule of law at home, actually saying that internationally, um, there's no, it's not going to ob ob observe the rule of law. And I think at the heart of the problems of reconstruction in Iraq um, and at the heart of the problems in the Middle East um, lies a radical Muslim's view, uh, which is that actually um, they're legitimate in having a crack at the United States of America because it's a lawless um, globe that's been constructed. And I, that was a, a, the, uh, I, think, I think that the judgment, I mean, both George Bush and Tony Blair invite us to um, judge them, that history will judge them more kindly, actually, than their contemporaries. I think history will judge both Bush and Blair very unkindly. That's the book. There you go. You've got it in, in, you know, in two minutes. Well, you know, but your book also said at the outset you were championing the idea of a liberal America when it still seemed uh, a living, breathing idea. Can I say, I want to say something about that. I don't think Americans, I mean, you are judging by your website, you, you represent personally, Christopher, the, you know, the American progressive tradition, and, 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 and you fight for it um, very much in domestic terms, and you're right to. But what I think American progressives uh, often don't realize is that actually is how fundamentally important it is for the rest of the world that actually uh, America is progressive. Um, once it moves to the right, it pulls the whole world to the right. I'm one of those Americans, and there are lots of them, who, who counted on Tony Blair in a way to I introduce George Bush to a progressive role in the world, uh, and he let us down. He let you down. He let us down. I mean, I, he let me down. Um, I mean, there's been, there were a million people on the streets of London on February the 17th of this year, and there were a quarter million on the streets uh, when George Bush, in a weekday, not a weekend, a weekday, when George Bush came here um, last week. And um, his party is divided. I would guess that a majority of his cabinet, a majority of his party, and a majority of his members in the country passionately disagree with the position that he's taken. Tony Blair, let's come back to that global role and agenda. But the Bush-Blair summit in England is just over, overshadowed in a way by the bombs in Turkey, driven into British interests. What did England, what did you make of that Bush visit? I thought that it is, it is extraordinary. And it was extraordinary that um, George Bush, in his first term, should be given by the British government the first opportunity. It was the first state visit by a selling American president since Woodrow Wilson in 1919. Really? And he's not even in his second term, this man. Forgive me, but explain that. Bill Clinton visited the UK. So did Ronald Reagan. What was special about this one? What was special about this one was that this was the whole panoply of a, um, of a state visit. It had um, Ronald Reagan and um, Bill Clinton visited as heads of government. They, they, they flew in, they had conversations with the Prime Minister, um, and they flew out again. Um, this was um, so that uh, Bill Clinton went and had dinner in a London restaurant, um, and Ronald Reagan paid a visit to the Queen, but he wasn't um, the guest of the Queen. Um, this occasion, George Bush was the guest of um, the British monarch, um, head of state offering another head of state um, three days um, in our country. So it was a, it was a, it was meant, it was of enormous symbolic importance. Now, I mean, a lot of us, I mean, just thought that was completely over the top. Well, all that's before the visit begins. Yeah. And then there's this spooky security, empty streets in the middle of London, and then, of course, the bombs and that strangely quizzical 
uh, response from Bush and Blair. Interpret all this. Well, Blair, actually, I think, and the Blairites think that, um, in a curious way, the, um, the murders in Istanbul worked to his advantage in that it proved the point that there is a international war against terrorism, that the um, radical Islam um, wants to kill anybody. Um, they want to kill everybody from, you know, Michael Moore and Howard Dean through to um, the British um, Consulate General in Istanbul. They don't make any difference between us. Um, and that that is the new enemy. And that in a curious way, it validated the visit. Mm. And that's what the Blair people are saying. Um, Who agrees with them? Well, the country is split down the middle. Really? The country is split down the middle. Um, the country is, in fact, there's a small majority in favor of uh, the position that Blair and Bush have taken. You'd expect that when, when, when times get tough, you know, it's like when the soldiers are in combat, you find that countries rally, 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 rally around a leader who's taken them into combat. And there's that, there's that sense of beleaguerment here. Um, you know, we've had, in a, you know, we are, we've got a very, very big uh, Muslim population here. I mean, you know that some of the people have been, have been involved in the, in, they were involved in the Taliban in Afghanistan, they've been involved in Al-Qaeda, they, you know, we have, we have British nationals. Uh, who are Muslims, who are very, who are part of the radical Islamic community. We are expecting a terrorist attack and continuing terrorist attacks in our major cities um, all the time. And so there's a sense of rallying around um, the leader, <clears throat> even though there are profound misgivings about the direction in which the leader is taking us. So you had people who were critical of, of Blair being even more critical of Blair, saying, you have put us in the front line, you know, and um, the only, what this underlines is that the only way to deal with radical Islam, with this kind of terrorism, is actually to assemble uh, a, pro you know, a profound international coalition, um, which gives you intelligence and collaboration and really takes the position that this kind of, these suicide bombings are against civilization. You want a profound coalition that you assemble, um, which using and exercising international law, you know, fights this threat to civilization. And what you can't go around is, you know, um, being kind of tonto to George Bush's um, Lone Ranger, but a kind of John Wayne view of international politics in which, you know, George Bush swaggers into Iraq, you know, um, and with, you know, wanted Saddam Hussein dead or alive. And by the way, um, wanted Saddam Hussein dead or alive to many British people, especially the military, is outrageous. Um, Saddam Hussein should be captured alive and tried. Um, he shouldn't, I mean, you shouldn't be different as to whether you capture this man alive or dead. But this kind of Wild West mentality, again, you know, not respecting the rule of law, um, is what we in Britain have allied ourselves to. And, uh, you know, there is, I, I personally believe, um, that it will cost um, Blair his prime ministership. And he, I think, knows that. Well, let's sort this out. You're saying a lot of conflicting things here, that the Bush-Blair response is popular, that it confirms the sense of a, a great enemy, and yet that it's also a disaster for the world and going to be the end of, of Tony Blair. I, I'm not sure I get it. Well, I'm telling you what the opinion polls are telling you. I mean, the opinion polls here had, there was an opinion poll taken, there's an opinion poll taken before and during the visit, which showed the British, um, you know, 50, 55, 60s were in favor of... Um, um, the Bush alliance in favor of um, the war against terrorism as it was currently being waged. That's a, you know, I'm, I report that as a political fact. I'm also reporting an unfolding dynamic, which I, in, in my view, 
um, is the worst foreign policy mistake both countries have made since 1945. And I think that, and I think this is much worse in many respects than than Vietnam, although the, the number of deaths are trivial, but by comparison with the number of deaths Americans experienced in Vietnam, we have, without, we have made the security position worse, we have damaged our interests, um, we, have inf we have radicalized um, and legitimized um, Islamic terrorism, we've extended it across the Middle East. In Britain's terms, we've, di we've di directly damaged our national interests. British nationals can't move in the Middle East. Our, our mm. um, banks and financial services organizations there, which are one of our most extensive, you know, are closing. We can't, British Airways can't land in Riyadh. Our position in the European Union is completely compromised. And for what? I mean, if you've made some gains in the war against terrorism, I think people would feel a lot better about it. And so what I, think, what I think is going to happen is a political dynamic over the next year or two or three that notwithstanding today's polls, I think will lead to um, you know, a major re-evaluation by the British of, what, of what's happened. Who voices those views, Will Hutton, in Parliament or elsewhere in the press? They're viewed, um, they're articulated um, in the House of Commons by about a half of the Parliament, a third to a half of the Parliamentary Labour Party, all the Liberal Democrats, and a small minority of the Conservative Party. So of 650 people in the House of Commons, probably 250 uh, are actively against the current policy, and I suspect the number would quickly rise to 350 if people weren't thinking about their careers in the parliamentary Labour Party and hoping to get into government and all the rest of it. Um, in the press, um, the press is um, extraordinarily sceptical. There are very few, the newspapers, I would say, are two to one um, against the or are sceptical about the war. The Liberal press. Um, very sceptical, um, and the conservative press increasingly sceptical. So it's, it's, um, you find it in the military um, uh, and in the security services and the foreign office uh, almost universally um, against this war. I mean, I, uh, um, the military um, are loyal. Of course, they, they, they follow their commander-in-chief, but privately um, many have told me that um, the profound misgivings about what took place in the foreign office is, um, was, was just not listened to. And one of the difficulties over here, you've been maybe following the, the inquiry by Lord Hutton into the death Very of much a, so, yeah. That is going to provide Blair a lot of difficulty in January when it reports because um, he, Tony Blair, on the, when David Kelly, the scientist at the heart of this dispute, committed suicide, Blair told a, a, a plane full of journalists that he was traveling to Japan at the time with that he had nothing to do with it. Uh, in fact, we now know that um, Number 10 and he personally can have authorized the disclosure of the name and, and, and the whole you know, chain of events that led to Dr. Kelly's suicide. And a lot of political capital were made of that by the um, conservatives. But what comes out of the inquiry was how, uh, how, how deeply held the misgivings were by the security services about the way you know, their intelligence was being used by the politicians. So this was, I mean, what happened here was that the British bent the facts um, to, because of, we, we, bent the, we bent the facts because we wanted, we, because the, the bigger political judgment call was to, was to follow um, the U.S. and George Bush into this morass, and so you know you have a, you have a, you have a, you know, a great country, um, you know, um, compromised its security services, compromised its military, has compromised its foreign, uh, its foreign office and its diplomatic and its consular uh, and ambassadorial staff, you know, all of whom. Uh, a large majority of whom were counseled in caution or actively not doing this. All of it we've kind of, um, we've compromised in order to, to kind of have this stick close to George policy. And that was, that was about Tony's,
personal call. And, and I think we've let down the progressive um, tradition in the United States, by the way. I think we've, made it eat, we, we've helped legitimize George Bush and undermined people in America who were critical of this adventure. I wonder, is Tony Blair's own confidence shaken? And I also wonder, when are we going to see a real crack in his base? I think, I think, uh, I think his confidence is um, profoundly shaken. I think that um, he, knows that he, he, he knows that Iraq was in, has cost him a lot of political capital. He says boldly to his inside, uh, the, inside, the insiders that if he lived his life again, he would do the same again. I don't actually believe that. Um, he's been trying to rebuild his relationships with, the, with other countries in the European Union. Uh, we speak on a day where Jacques Chirac, the President of France, is actually visiting Britain, and, and you know, the lines are out to the French and the Germans. What Blair should have done, without doubt, is to have organized a European force to go to the Gulf um, this time last year, uh, and to have told the United Nations that he was ready to go into action with the Americans but only when the weapons inspectors said that the, uh, the weapons inspection, you know, had led them to believe that Saddam Hussein was actually hiding the weapons and was infringement of these sanctions. And then it, it should have been a UN General Assembly vote and our people go in. And you'd have had 100,000 European men sitting in, in Kuwait in January, February, March of this year, you know, only prepared, to, only, only prepared to go and under, the, under the auspices of international law. And when the Americans went, ignoring... And the United Nations. We should have sat in Kuwait and not gone. And I think that I, I think that that would have changed the political the, the policy of this completely. And it I would have changed the European politics. Would it have changed the Middle Eastern politics? It would, would have changed. Be, the, would it would have changed fewer the, bombs going off in Istanbul or in, in Iraq, for that matter? Yep. How so? Well, first of all, I think that had this happened, I think that America would have. I think George Bush would have been a lot more cautious about about going. You know, and certainly you couldn't have accused the Europeans of being cheese-eating surrender monkeys and all the Robert Kagan stuff about coming from Venus. Um, if you know, we had forces ready, ready, ready to go, but only in the context of international law.